series that we're calling Discerning the Good, also subtitled Gospel Transformation and Cultural Pressures. We're engaging with some of the beliefs and practices of our culture at large, and we're holding those things up to God's Word. And we're trying to discern the good from the bad. Our, our goal isn't really to focus on what's wrong in the world. Our, goal, our focus is on what's good about what God has planned for us so that we can re rejoice in that, live in the good of it, and have something to share with others. Uh, the topic for today is gender identity. The question of gender identity is this. Are you a male or a female or something else? Not long ago, you could ask that question to 100 random people on the street, and they would not even have to think about their answer. They would just say, well, I'm a male or I'm a female, based on their born, their born gender, and they wouldn't even think there was another option. That's not the case anymore, uh, at least not in Western cultures. Now, it's increasingly likely that you will work with or live next to or have family members who identify as transgender who view themselves as a different gender than their, their biological gender. And that has increased along with the rise of what we talked about last week, which is expressive individualism, the idea that you decide or define who you are and what you're going to do with your life, how you're going to express it. So that is something that feeds right into the subject of gender identity. I'll just say this, our own experience in our family, uh, we have two nephews who have transition their body appearance from male to female. Uh, we have been to parties and other events where we've been interacting with transgender people. Uh, we have in our uh, family friend who identifies herself as non-binary, she's at our dinner table on a regular basis. So that's me, and I'm not even all that involved in the secular marketplace. And so I know this is something that all of us uh, are dealing with, and we need to know what does God say about it? So, to answer that, we're going to start at the beginning. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 1 and to the account of our creation, because that's where God has established our foundational identity. And then after we look at what it says to us there, we're going to go to other passage and address the more specific issues related to gender identity, and we're going to see the, what God's redemptive solution is to the whole thing, his perspective. Even if you don't suffer from or, or deal with transgender um, feelings, there's still an identity problem that we all have and that only Jesus Christ can fix. And so we're going to preach the gospel as we do this. So let's read Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and then we'll jump to 31, and then we'll pray. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Let's pray. Lord, you say in, in Isaiah, your word shall not return to you empty. It will accomplish that which you purpose. It will succeed in the thing for which you sent it. 
And we ask you to do that this morning, that the success would be that we understand your word, that we are able to discern the good and sort that out from what else we hear in the world, and that we can live in the good and bring, bring that to other people, the hope that we have in Christ and all that flows from it. So help us now by your Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So does God have anything to say about our identity, uh, about who we are as individuals, specifically about our gender? And yes, He does. And it actually begins right here at the very creation of mankind. This passage establishes our created identity. And so here it is, again, in summary. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So in the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them, and behold, it was very good. This is where we begin to answer the questions about gender identity. We have to start with the fact that we are created in God's image, and we are created in God's image as either male or female. And both of those things are significant. First of all, we are created in the image of God. And that means that who we are is connected to who God is. Our identity is tied to His identity. We're not just in our own image, like the song that we sang uh, we are in His image. We are not our own. Psalm 100 verse 3 in the New American Standard says, It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. So we are like children who look like their parents. We can't just say, I look this way because that's the way I wanted to look. <laughs> no, no, we owe the, the appearance that we have to somebody else, to our parents. Uh, we, we look like them, we, we have mannerisms like them, our intelligence comes from them, even our approach to life it is a reflection of someone who we are related to, who are, we are in their likeness. We have a connection like that with God. We bear His resemblance. We're in His likeness, His image. And so we only know who we are in reference to who God is. Because we're in His image, not just our own. Our identity is necessarily tied to who God is and what He's created us to do. That's the first significant thing about our identity. Our, this is the second one, this. Our identity is also tied to our gender. In the image of God, He created Him. Male and female, He created them. Every human bears the resemblance of our Creator God, but we bear that resemblance in one of two created genders, male or female. There's a male version of resembling God, and there's a female version of resembling God in the world. Both are made in the image of God, and yet they're very different, and that is very good. It says in verse 31, God saw everything He made. He saw the male, He saw the female, and behold, it was very good. It is good to be a male in God's image. It is good to be a woman in God's image. It is very good that they're different and yet the same. And so, chapter 2, Genesis, Adam figured that out pretty quick. Um, 
When the man met the woman described in Genesis 2.23, he saw the reality of God's goodness and the difference right away. He said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I like how one paraphrase translation captures the emotion here. He says, this is it. <laughs> she is part of my own bone and flesh. In other words, here is someone who is like me, bone and flesh, made in God's image, but who is not like me. She is woman, not man. She is female, not male. And I like the difference a lot. <laughs> God likes it a lot. He invented it. He had any option he, he wanted at the creation, and he made this option, male or female. So let me summarize all this. What's our created identity? It's two things. We bear God's image, and so we can't separate our identity from Him. And we bear His image as a male or a female, and both ways of bearing that image are very good. Now, we start there because when it comes to our culture's concept of gender identity, both of those aspects of our created identity are being challenged. The thinking is, you can have an identity without reference to God and His will for us. And gender is not tied to your born anatomy. It's something you decide for yourself. And male and female are not the only two options. That's the thinking of our culture. Let me address the second of those two assumptions first, and then we'll deal with the first one in the next point. Here's the question. Are there more than two genders, and how is gender decided? Well, here's what some of the cultural voices are saying. Uh, there's a woman in a BBC film that was aimed at teaching children about gender. And she said, we know we have got male and female, but there are over 100, if not more, gender identities now. So I did a quick Google search on list of genders to find out what's included in the 100 plus possibilities. And some of the options were what you would expect, males identifying as females and vice versa. But some of the other options were like this, gender fluid, ambigender, omnigender, agender, amaragender, which is defined as having a gender identity that changes depending on the person one is emotionally attached to, and astral gender, which is defined as having a gender identity that feels to be related to space. That's just a few of the 100 plus. So the cultural thinking on gender identity is that there are many genders and they are not tied to your born anatomy. They are not tied to your biological gender as male or female. So what are they tied to then? How do you decide gender? They're tied to how you feel about yourself. Whether you're emotionally attached to somebody else and that that sort of thing. How do you feel? That's why the total number is undefined, because the gender options are as varied as the number of ways that we feel about ourselves. So the list just goes on and on. But what does our Creator say in His Word? Well, God's Word says that He created two genders, male and female, rooted in anatomical differences that were easily discernible to Adam. He knew right away what the gender was of this other person 
who was made in God's image. And the whole Bible is consistent with this understanding that there are two genders rooted in our biological makeup. Here's just some of the evidence for that. A quick flyover. Marriage, for example, is always spoken of as a union between a man and a woman. For example, Jesus, he repeats the Genesis account of the two genders in the question about divorce in Matthew 19. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he goes on to affirm marriage as the God-ordained union of those two genders. We have commands from God to men and to women individually, but never to some other kind of gender, which there should be if there were more options. A union of a biological male and a biological female is the only way that children are born into this world. The male provides the seed, the female conceives and gives birth, and that was common understanding. For example, in Jeremiah 30, verse 6, the Lord asks Israel a rhetorical question. He says, Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? So he's speaking figuratively about the distress of the people of Israel, that the distress was inappropriate in light of the fact that he was going to save them. And so he compares their distress to something that everybody knows, which is that a man can't go into labor and bear a child. Only a woman can do that. So why are the men acting as if they're in labor in their distress? Well, if, if transgender is an option, then a woman who identifies as a man, a man could in fact bear a child. If it's a woman transitioned out in appearance to a man, she still has the parts to bear a child. But see, the biblical worldview doesn't even allow for that. How can a man bear a child? He can't. More than that, whenever there's a confusion of the genders, it's always described as a departure from God's will and not something to be done. So there's a command in Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. This is not ultimately about clothing. This is about blurring the difference between a man and a woman in the way they look. There were cultural expressions of masculinity, a man's garment, and a cultural expression of femininity, a woman's cloak. And the biblical command was, don't confuse the genders by how you dress. And that's not just an Old Testament command or principle, because the same theme is picked up in Paul's letters. In 1 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15, we read this, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, laying aside the debate about head coverings, one thing we can say here is that hair length was a cultural expression of either maleness or femaleness in that day. Long hair was a disgrace for guys, but the glory of the ladies. So with that cultural expression of maleness and femaleness, the gender should not be confused by guys looking like girls or vice versa. The principle is the confusion of the genders, not the length of the hair. 
and more could be said. But the cultural assumption that there are more genders, many genders, is that we decide what they should be. And that's not supported by God's Word. Our created identity is that we are either male or female. And that is established by God, who created us and formed us in the womb fearfully and wonderfully. And then that gender was revealed to us, either in the ultrasound or at the birth, when somebody said, it's a boy or it's a girl. We were, we were discovering what God made, the gender that He made. Now we need to deal with the second cultural assumption, which is that you can have an identity without reference to God and of His will for us. So that leads to the second point, which I'm going to call our disordered, or rather our disoriented identity. Our disoriented identity. I'm using that word disoriented because that's how a person feels when they don't know who they are. Like a refugee forced out of her home country, living in another place, in exile, a person without a nation. What do I belong to? Like a retiree who was an engineer for 40 years, and now he's done with that and doesn't know what he's supposed to do with himself. Like an empty nester whose life has been tied to raising kids, but now that they're all gone, there's this void to fill. So your identity, yourself, your sense of self is something that grounds you, it gives you stability, a value, and purpose. So when the thing your identity is based on is missing, it's disorienting. And so you try to find stability by looking for something else, something to replace that center, that thing that used to ground you. Well, Scripture tells us, we all have a disoriented identity if we try to live without God as our grounding center. We're in His image, and so we only know who we are in reference to who God is. And if we take God out of the equation, the result is disorientation and a pursuit of something else to fulfill that desire for groundedness and stability and value and purpose. But it won't work in the end. Romans 1.21 puts the situation this way. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. If God and His Word won't ground our identity, then what's left for us is to trust our own thoughts, our own feelings to decide who we are and what we're going to do. And that res results in a futile quest for something to ground you and give you purpose. And that's why one of the descriptions of where mankind is today, naturally, is in the word lost. Lost. Luke chapter 15 has three parables in it. They're all parables of lost things. There's the lost sheep, there's the lost coin, and there's the lost son, the prodigal son. And each one of those represents humanity disconnected from our centering reality that we are made by God to be in relationship with God and bear His image in the world. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, according to Romans 3. This lostness, this disorientation leads us in all kinds of directions to find some answer to, who am I? And one of those directions is to redefine even our own gender. 
And that's why some are saying that there are over 100 genders because the list is going to be as long as we have different variations about how we feel about ourselves. <clears throat> the cultural assumption is that your feelings about who you are have to be validated. Your identity can't be imposed on you from the outside. Your feelings determine your true identity, and so living authentically is to act out of your true identity, whatever it is that you feel that you are. Now, there's fallout for that in the world. Um, let me just lead down some of the possible options. If, if in fact, your desire is to determine who you are, then that leads to some really absurd real absurdities, really. So what if a person says, I feel like a seven-year-old, and I would like to go to first grade? Well, that's how they live their truth, if they're going to live authentically. What if a person says, I feel like a German shepherd, and I want to be fed dog food and sleep in the backyard? Now, those are wild examples, crazy examples, but if you're following the logic... You can't say that they're wrong. If they define who, what their reality and identity is, then you have to let the guy join the first grade and the other guy has to get dog food and sleep in the backyard because they're living out their true self. Obviously, it leads to some absurdities if you go down that road. This isn't just an academic or a theological issue. The confusion surrounding gender is producing real harm. And the most objective, measurable example of this is in the realm of gender reassignment treatments. So this was several years ago. I came across a, a report. It was published in a, a magazine called The New Atlantis, which is a journal of technology and society. And this report was titled Sexuality and Gender, Findings from the Biological psychological and social scientists. So two researchers gathered up all these different scientific studies from those realms, trying to find an answer to, is there a scientific basis for saying things like, I was born this way, or, you know, this desire is what determines my gender. Like, what does the science say? And they gathered up all these articles, and then they summarized it and made some conclusions. I'll just read a couple of the statements from the executive summary of the report. They say the hypothesis that gender identity is independent of biological sex, that a person might be a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body, is not supported by scientific evidence, which it wouldn't be if it's all based on feelings and not based on X and Y chromosomes. They go on, they talk about the consequences of altering your body from male to female or vice versa. Uh, they said, compared to the general population, adults who have undergone sex reassignment surgery continue to have a higher risk of experiencing poor mental health outcomes. One study found that compared to controls, sex reassigned individuals were about five times more likely to attempt suicide and about 19 times more likely to die by suicide. That's after they've had the surgery and the hormonal treatment. Children are a special case, they say, when addressing transgender issues. Only a minority of children who experience cross-gender identification will continue to do so into adolescence or adulthood. There is no evidence 
that all children who express gender atypical thoughts or behavior should be encouraged to become transgender. So the objective evidence is that gender transition treatments are doing real harm, especially to children, because most of the kids, I think the number was 80%, will grow out of those feelings by the time they reach teen and adulthood, but the change will already have been made irreversible. So their feelings have changed, but their body is stuck where, where, where it ended up after the surgeries, and they don't want that anymore. Um, they trusted the adults in their lives to give them good advice about what to do with their feelings, but then their feelings changed to put their bodies are permanently altered. I, I watched the testimony of one young man. He looked to be in his mid-20s. He had gone through that route as a kid. He said, I feel like I'm a woman. They, made, they went through all the changes. Then later he changed his mind, and now he lamented the fact. He called himself a permanent patient because he has so many health problems that are related to removing or changing healthy organs and parts of his body. The cultural view of gender identity does real harm. And this isn't even touching on the negative effects in society as a whole, like family strife that happens when somebody's transitioning within their own group, or the protests that happen when, when biological men are competing in women's sports, or the politics of deciding who is allowed into a bathroom. It's creating so much strife, conflict, tension in, this, in the world. So it might seem like a loving thing to validate someone's chosen gender identity, but real love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth and communicates the truth that there is a better way. And what does the truth of God's Word say? It says we won't find our identity, we won't find our grounding truth, our stabilizing sense of who we are by looking within. We will find it by looking at God and what He has made us to be in His image as male or female and that this is very good. We don't align our bodies and our lives to what we feel. We align our lives according to what is real, which is our created identity. And every departure from that produces a disorientation that leads to consequences. And whether that disorientation is manifested in our gender identity or any other form of living without reference to God, it does have consequences, both now and in eternity, apart from God's intervention. Being lost is never an improvement on our situation. But here's the deal. There's good news for lost people, <laughs> which is all of us who live without reference to God. Because in those parables from Luke 15 about lost things, they always end with the lost person being found and there being much rejoicing. <laughs> there is a way back to stability and meaning and purpose that God has created us to thrive in. And so that brings us to the last point, which is our renewed identity. Our renewed identity. God, our Creator, has a solution for our, our lostness. <laughs> he tells us what our identity is, and He restores that identity. The solution is He came into the world to restore us to Himself. 
and to give us the stability and meaning and purpose that we're looking for. Jesus, God in the flesh, said in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When you are lost, you need someone to find you, to get you back to a fixed reference point so you know where you are and who you are and you know the way that you're supposed to go. And Jesus does that for everyone who looks to him for rescue from all the confusion that we've gotten ourselves into, including gender confusion, but also much other kind. And how does Jesus do it? By restoring us to God through his death on the cross. There he atoned for our sins of going our own way, of doing what's right in our own eyes. There he bore the guilt and the punishment for us doing that And when we acknowledge our sin and trust in Jesus as our sin bearer, we are forgiven. We are restored to relationship with God. We get grounded again as his image bearers. Our identity is now renewed in Christ. And the Apostle Paul is an example of what that looks like. In Philippians chapter 3, he was describing all the things that gave him a sense of identity throughout his life. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Those are all things that used to ground him and give him value and security and significance and direction. His identity was wrapped up in it. But then after he trusted Christ, he had this to say about all that in Philippians 3, 8 and 9. I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he says, now, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, being a Pharisee, being zealous, being blameless, none of that matters to me anymore. That's not grounding me anymore. That's not my identity. Now my identity is I am found in Christ. I am restored to God through Christ who died in my place and for my sins. I have his righteousness credited to me through faith. I'm becoming like Jesus who is in the perfect image of God. That's my renewed identity. And if, you're put, if you are found in Him, if that's where your faith is, your identity is also renewed. It, is, it has been renewed, it is being renewed, and it will be completely renewed one day when you see Him face to face. And we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. That's what John said. And that grounds us. That's stability, that's security. That can't ever change. So if you have gender atypical thoughts, as the report called them, they may not go away. Just as all of our other disordered thoughts don't all go away either, we're going to struggle with that throughout this life. But they need not control you, and they do not define you if your faith is in Christ. What defines you is you are made in the image of God, and that image has been and is being renewed day by day in your relationship with Christ. Let me close with three points of application. They all deserve more time than I have, but I'll keep them short and to the point. 
Number one, there is hope for all transgender people. It's the same hope that everyone has because we all have identity problems. We all, at some point, live without reference to God, our Creator. And we all have the same Savior who came to seek and to save the lost. Even if you've changed your body, even if you've been through the trauma of rejection, even if you have regrets, even if it seems like there's no hope for happiness, there is. To be found in Christ is to be safe, is to be restored, is to have love and acceptance, all that you ever dreamed of and more, because it's the love of God that comes to us at the sacrifice of His own Son. It's yours as you give your life over to Jesus. Here's the second application. Oppose gender ideology, but love those who are hurt by it. The typical trans person is not necessarily a crusader for the ideology. They just don't know what to do with their feelings, and they've listened to what the world tells them to do with them. True, there is willful sin in that, but they're also distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And they need our compassion, like the compassion that Jesus showed the crowds when they came to him. Jesus ate with the sexual sinners of his day. And he was called a friend of sinners for that reason. That doesn't mean Jesus approved of what they were doing. He did not. But it does mean he was willing to have them in his life so they could see and hear about the hope of the gospel. If you're not comfortable having an LGBTQ person in your home, that means you're like the disciples who followed Jesus into those places where he went. They weren't comfortable either. It wasn't their idea to go to these places, but Jesus brought them there. And he made those opportunities for them to grow in loving the sinners of that day so they could become like him. And that's what he's doing for us when he's putting different people in our lives. And it's uncomfortable. He wants us to lean into that. Can you show them compassion? Can you have them in your life? welcoming those with gender confusion into your home and life doesn't mean approval of their choices. It just means doing what God does, who seeks and saves the lost. I should answer the practical question that's on a lot of people's minds, probably. Do we use a person's preferred pronouns? Do you call a he, a she, or a they? You're going to have to wrestle with that if you're going to have transgendered people in your life. I'm still wrestling with it. Let me give you a short and probably unsatisfying answer. It's from Romans 14.5, which is in the context of issues of conscience. Paul said, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. <laughs> you need to be fully convinced about whatever, whatever it is you do. In other words, think about the Scriptures, pray about it, and then seems what is right before, do what seems is right before God in the situation you're in. I wish it was easier than that, but sincere, godly, smart people who write books that we all respect don't agree on this. Um, one book 
woman who came out of lesbian background, she said it would be a sin for me to use their pronouns because I would be supporting the ideology and encouraging them in their sin, and it's a lie. Another one, though, another guy says, no, I would use their preferred, preferred pronouns depending on the context. They make the gospel the hill to die on and not the pronouns as an attempt to be all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That's another way of looking at it. A middle ground is that people just avoid the pronouns altogether and just use their name, but that's going to be a little awkward if their name is really long or you can't pronounce it. <clears throat> this is a real debate among sincere believers. So in the end, be fully convinced in your own mind based on the Scripture's prayer and counsel for your situation. Last application is this, be a witness for Jesus. People aren't saved only by welcome and friendship, so don't stop there. Nor are they saved by changing their ideas about gender, so don't make that your goal. People are only saved by putting their trust in Christ for forgiveness of sin, so make that our goal. A person may not recognize transgender as sin, but everyone has a sin on their conscience in, in at least other ways. Tell them about the Savior who forgives sin and makes all of us new. And then once they're made new through trusting Christ, then they'll understand the reason to embrace their created identity and live in the good of that, which they will have with their renewed identity in Christ. So may we all experience the renewed identity of being found in Christ. That's where stability is. That's where life, value, significance, purpose is all found in Him. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you haven't left us in the dark about anything important. Um, the fact that there's even commands going way back to the Old Testament about not confusing the genders tells us this isn't a new thing. This has been going on for thousands of years. And the gospel is still the same gospel. And your power to change is still there. And we have a glorious future ahead of us in Christ. So help us to remember that and lean into it. And show people the good of all that you created. We ask it in Jesus' name.